Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. I am an avid listener to a vast array of different podcasts for, and I have been for several years now. So therefore I've heard my share of so-called emergency episodes. And just to quickly explain, that's when regardless of what the topic is of the podcast, if something in their scope of interest happens as breaking news during a particular time period, they may um, break away from their standard recording schedule and put together a short emergency podcast. So I'm not going to say this is an emergency, but it has to do with what's going, something that's going on now that I really want to get off my chest. And I will begin this podcast with a declaration that I am proudly sharing space with Joe Rogan on Spotify. But simultaneously, I believe Rogan's recent Instagram video explanation was weak, awfully weak, especially when it's coming from a, such a known tough guy. Now, I will get to the hypocritical musicians involved in this fiasco, but right now, please allow me to add some much-needed context to Rogan's recorded statement. Why does he need to offer balance and a disclaimer when no other player in this drama does so? Every media outlet, with the possible exception of Fox News, believe it or not, is acting like a stenographer to power while gleefully censoring all unsanctioned thought. Why isn't anyone screaming for them to offer disclaimers and balance? On my own podcast, I have no interest in giving space to the mainstream narrative on any topic. I mean, hello, it's the mainstream narrative. By definition, it already has all the space that it wants, too much space, not to mention it has the hearts and minds of too many consumers. Why would I go, out, go through all the trouble to start a podcast to just add my voice to the already existing groupthink choir? And why should Rogan be held to such a standard either? In fact, that standard doesn't even exist. If it did, every time the criminal, Dr. Anthony Fauci, appeared on CNN, we would need two things. A CNN talking head would have to explain that the criminal, Dr. Anthony Fauci, is just one of countless voices and opinions, and his opinions do not reflect those of the network. Secondly, CNN would be required to have someone like me on as a guest within the next 24 hours to refute everything that the criminal, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said. Unless and until this starts to happen, you are a fraud, a coward, a hypocrite, and a censor to demand such behavior from Joe Rogan or anyone else. In addition, Joe Rogan's show is not sponsored by ads purchased by countless massive multinational corporations like, wait for it, Pfizer. Pfizer spends roughly $2 billion a year on advertising, so spare me the bullshit about how much money Rogan gets from Spotify. His $100 million contract is tip money to Big Pharma. And then we have Spotify. Sure, it's admirable that they've stood up to the anti-science cancel culture censors, but for the sake of clarity, I'm not here to extol the virtues of any large corporation, not even Spotify. You might even want to type the words Spotify unfair artist compensation into your nearest search engine before comparing them to Emma Goldman or Ralph Nader. Now, 
I wish Joe Rogan would have told the anti-free speech critics to fuck off instead of offering a lukewarm explanation that reeked of attempted compromise. Hey, Joe, the woke crowd is never going to compromise with you. Their goal is to silence any and all competition. So you might as well go full Rogan on them and kick some ass. Trying to appease Spotify, Neil Young, mainstream corporate science, or any of that will not save you from cancel culture. What will protect you, however, is for you to laugh in their faces, make no apologies, and keep doing what you're doing. Mark my words, Mr. Rogan, the censors will tap out first. So in summary, again, I am proudly sharing space with Joe Rogan on Spotify. I respect what he does, and, rega and regardless of any time that I may disagree with him. When I come back, I'll talk about the sellout artists who fancy themselves to be freedom fighters. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe, maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show. Neil Young Joni Mitchell and others like them represent an era when musicians and artists very famously and at least ostensibly stood up for their freedoms and even for the freedoms of others. Today, these same folks stand together against freedom. They are not taking brave or radical stances. They are choosing the safest, easiest path and perhaps the most lucrative path. Keep in mind that Neil Young, in early 2021, sold half of his music catalog to a song management company that merged with Blackstone in a $1 billion deal, and Blackstone's senior advisor in this project is a man named Jeffrey B. Kindler. Kindler, prior to this position, was the chairman and CEO of Pfizer. So in his new capacity as senior advisor, could Jeffrey B. Kindler be advising musicians to take a stand against Spotify because Spotify has the audacity to host a podcast that gets 11 million listeners slash viewers per episode and dares to be critical of COVID vaccines by offering facts, facts that could significantly impact the profits of Big Pharma? 
And also keep in mind of how incestuous the financial world is. There are plenty of high-ranking but anonymous investment firms who own music catalogs and also have ties to pharmaceutical companies. How hard is it to get these long sold-out musicians to shill for the jab? So all of you who want or expect or demand Joe Rogan to offer a perfectly balanced show with a perfectly worded um, disclaimer before every show. How about you also demand that the mainstream media cover Neil Young's connection to Big Pharma? And when Joni Mitchell releases an ignorant and uninformed statement that includes lines like irresponsible people are spreading lies that are costing people lives, where is CNN and the New York Times to ask her for a citation or to have someone like me on afterwards to refute her nonsense? This shameful situation is brimming with lessons. Too many to list here, but I'll mention a few. First of all, do not idolize anyone, whether it's Neil Young or Joe Rogan or anyone. Secondly, do not believe anything you get from the corporate media. Thirdly, do not ever line up on the side of censorship. And lastly, perhaps most importantly, always follow the money. Even though this is a very short, quote unquote, emergency podcast, I'm going to stick with the tradition of offering my story of the week to close things out. And I will keep a martial arts theme in honor of Joe Rogan. Because after all, he's not the only older, bald, white, male martial arts podcaster allegedly spreading misinformation all over the interwebs. Like most martial artists of my generation, I dreamt of being the next Bruce Lee. The difference is I went out and did something about it. I studied Bruce's original style, Wing Chun Kung Fu, and then diligently branched out to learn a wide array of techniques from a wide array of New York City martial artists. In addition, I've actually appeared in a dozen or so films. Yes, I use that term loosely. I've still got the movie posters and magazine covers to prove it. Anyway, the first chop sake flick that I ever did was called Low Blow and featured none other than a pre-Taibo Billy Blanks. He and I flew out together to Stockton, California to work on a project with a lunch budget that rarely went above the peanut butter and jelly sandwich level. Regardless, I had fun with Billy. We trained together, we got paid to give a seminar at a local karate school, and I even ended up lending him some cash when he ran out. FYI, Billy Blanks still owes me $150. Over the ensuing years, I did manage to move laterally, I guess, in terms of my film career. All the other movies I worked on were filmed in the metropolitan area, so I at least got to sleep at home after toiling all day as a muscular celluloid ghoul or a drug dealer or a security guard or something like that. The celluloid ghoul role was for a movie called Necropolis, City of the Dead. Let's just say it wasn't exactly an art film. I was subjected to two hours of special effects makeup and some of the filming took place late at night in Central Park. Now this was during a time in the Big Apple when no one, absolutely no one in their right mind walked around in Central Park after midnight. Well, I checked that adventure off my bucket list. Another necropolis location was a catacomb-like collection of dark, dusty rooms underneath and inside the Brooklyn Bridge. 
One late night culminated when the genius filmmakers decided to set off a smoke bomb in that tight, enclosed setting. We were all warned to evacuate as soon as we got the signal. The smoke was released. The signal was given. The entire cast and crew stampeded towards the door, and I did my best to push past everyone. As I stood there inhaling some fresh New York City air, I witnessed something I will never forget. A massive mischief of rats. And yes, that's the technical term. A mischief of rats came rushing and clawing and squealing out behind us. Dozens and dozens of them fleeing the smoke just like we did. One particularly large specimen ran up a nearby grass hill. The huge rodent rose up on its rear legs and stayed that way, silhouetted by a nearly full moon. Suddenly, my zombie makeup felt appropriate. Well, later that year, on an impressively warm New York City summer day, I got the call to act in yet another super low-budget classic, Robot Holocaust, produced by the same team that regurgitated Necropolis. This time, I got to work with my buddy, Fast Eddie. Eddie and I lived in the same neighborhood, and we worked as trainers at the Vertical Club, New York City's poshest gym. Anyway, on the set of Robot Holocaust, Eddie and I had dual roles. Yeah, we were so multi-talented that we played both air slaves and robots. As air slaves, we fought to the death, and that's primarily why we were hired. We could fight, and we looked good doing so in very skimpy outfits. As robots, we were so thoroughly ensconced in rubber costumes, there was zero chance that any of the five people who ended up seeing Robot Holocaust would ever identify us as the same gladiators who had just gotten zapped by a ray gun in the previous air slave scene. That air slave fight scene was filmed inside the squalid Brooklyn Navy Yard with minimal crash padding. By the time we finished, garnering a long round of applause, thank you, we were covered in both, both dirt and bruises. After considerable complaining, we gained access to the Brooklyn Navy Yard showers. However, we were unaware of these two facts. One, the drains were clogged, and two, the cats kept in the building to keep the rats away had appropriated those same showers as their community kitty litter pan. So within minutes, Eddie and I were standing naked in ankle-deep water with cat droppings floating by. I sensed instinctively that this was not how Brad Pitt got his start. Back at the Navy Yard the next day, it was even hotter. The slightest motion initiated a gradual process of sweat drenching my frame. Eddie and I donned the aforementioned rubber ensemble, and, well, there were problems. One, the costumes allowed no air to get inside. Two, we had zero peripheral vision. Three, we had to scurry up and down many stairs for several takes. And four, at one point, Eddie was required to wield a real sword. The director, who I'm sure eventually found a new vocation, bellowed at us to proceed faster and look more imposing as we negotiated the steps, a pool of perspiration trailing behind us. This provoked more grumbling, and when our scenes were wrapped, a very odd thing transpired. The producers of Robot Holocaust cut us a check right there on the set. This was unusual, as both Fast Eddie and I normally had to pester producers for weeks or months to pay us for the work we did. At that juncture, we ascertained we would not become part of their celluloid repertory company. So we headed back to Queens for feline-free showers and set out to meet friends at a Van Halen concert in New Jersey. You could be certain our movie set anecdotes that night omitted any allusion to our incessant whining or floating cat feces. 
Since my action movie days, of course, I've steered my life into many other diverse directions. But for, as for Robot Holocaust, well, for as long as video stores were still a thing, both Fast Eddie and I appeared on the VHS box. So Billy Blanks can eat his heart out. But I still want my money with interest, preferably. Anyway, thank you for listening to this emergency podcast. Please spread the word. Please share the links. Please subscribe for $5 a month. But most importantly, please remember to keep your guard up. Everybody was Kung Fu 